Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, or Darius, the son of Asuerus, by descent a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquity and gaining insight by your truth. Father, I'm asking you to make an ancient prophetic text a right now word to us in this room, to those that are watching on live stream, to those who will watch later through various media. I'm asking you to let there be such an impact in our hearts that an echo will come out of our lives into the culture. Lord, we have not given up on the possibility of a cultural shifting revival being released from heaven. But Lord, we are sobered this very moment, feeling the weight and the tremble of this hour, knowing, God, that if we do not as your people repent, then nothing will be offered to the culture by way of revival unto repentance. We, Lord, need repentance unto revival. When the culture sees that revival, Lord, it may very well bring repentance. So God, here we are today. 
refusing in this hour to shirk our responsibility, refusing in this hour the temptation to be prideful, defensive, and deflecting. We say, Lord, we have sinned against you. We, your people, have sinned against you. And God, today, help us to own it, not out of false piety, not out of demonic accusation and sinful shame, but God, let us be truthful and honest before heaven's holy throne. And help us, Lord, help us, Lord, to receive contrition and brokenness, sobriety and weightiness, and let us truly glorify you by coming into agreement with what you say over your church in America so that our culture might have a chance to come into agreement with what you say over it. We need you. We ask this for the glory of the one seated upon the throne, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Messiah, the soon-coming King, who owns the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name, in that name we pray. Amen. Let me get this adjusted real quick. I feel the weight of this, and I'm not going to try to be a professional pastor this morning. I want to bring to you an unusual and unpopular confession, and it's one that this generation is going to need to embrace. It's unusual because it's a confession made by one man on behalf of everybody living in his generation. And it's unpopular because that one man on behalf of his current generation is going to own the sins of previous generations of his people. That makes it unusual and very unpopular, especially for proud, individualistic Westerners like us. We like to say, I'm not confessing anything I didn't personally do, and I'm not repenting of anything for which I am not personally guilty. And we ask questions like this, is it even biblical? Could it even be a kingdom principle? Is there any eternal paradigm from the throne of God where he requires us to repent on behalf of our ancestors? I don't have to answer that question because Daniel just did. And it's not the only place in the Bible where it's displayed. I want us to get serious this morning because we all want God's glory to be released in our generation. Every Christian in the room wants that. But I'm going to make a bold statement. It cannot happen until we repent. And not a superficial repentance. And not a solely individual repentance, but a corporate repentance that encompasses you and me right now all the way back as far as the Holy Spirit decides to take us. And if we have in our collective heart a proud unwillingness 
to say, that wasn't my fault. I didn't do that. I'm not responsible for that. The Father is so intentional and tender and patient. He will say, when you think differently, I'll circle back and I'll keep offering you what I'm offering you you today. But until you think differently, it won't be released. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the heritage that you and I are walking in. If it feels like I'm coming against your nationalism today, I'm telling you that's actually a byproduct, if that's the case. I'm not going after nationalism today. I'm going after our hearts today as the people of God, forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, justified eternally by his sacrifice. A people to whom has been given immeasurable grace. A people who are walking in seemingly inexhaustible mercy. A people who have been graced and blessed and lavished, reaping benefits from fields that we never planted, nor watered, nor even harvested, but we're eating from it. A people who is quick to run to the happy side of heaven and strongly in avoidance of the intense accountable side of heaven. We must be an honest people before the Lord. So Daniel tells us what that looks like. In the first two verses of chapter number nine, we see Daniel doing something that I believe we can all do and must all do. It's Daniel discerning the times, discerning the season in which he was living. Just listen to the verse. It sounds like a historical footnote, footnote, but Daniel's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's giving us some history. He says, in Darius's first year, the ruler who was ruling over the kingdom that was, had enslaved the people of God because of their rebellion, it's coming up on 70 years of captivity for Israel who are reaping what they had sown in rebellion. They were reaping in judgment from God. And Darius was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. And it was in the first year of his reign, and Daniel says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books. He's speaking specifically of the scroll of the prophecy of Jeremiah. I perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, the number of years that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, and then he names it, namely 70 years. Quickly, if you're new to your Bible, Jeremiah was a prophet, and for over about a quarter of a century of ministry to Israel, some seven decades before Daniel, Jeremiah had warned, the Lord's about to do something, the Lord's about to do something, the Lord's about to do something. Israel, repent. Stop serving the false gods. Stop muting and killing the prophets. Stop trusting in the external uh, aspects of the covenant and rend your heart before the Lord. Repent because judgment is coming. And Israel scoffed and mocked and denied the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. Picture it. How long have we heard preachers say, judgment's gonna come one day. Judgment day is a coming. 
The Lord is holy and just and will not allow us to continue in our sins. Yet year after year and decade after decade goes by and what can happen to the collective heart of a nation is we can say, there go the prophets again. There go the religious micromanagers again. There go the moralists again. There go the Christians again. And Jeremiah knew exactly what that felt like. He never had a convert. And sure as he prophesied, judgment hit Israel. And part of that prophecy was 70 years in captivity to Babylon. And when those 70 years come to an end, God will sovereignly raise up a foreign leader who will release Israel back to their homeland. Daniel was about 14 to 16 years old when that judgment came. Daniel was a teenager, wise, instructed, devout, and holy as a teenager. And he was taken away in captivity, chosen by Nebuchadnezzar's uh, government to be taken away as one of the cream of the crop of the Israelites, to be taken away, and he was schooled in all things Persian, all things Babylonian, all things pagan. And yet Daniel kept his heart before Yahweh, the God above every God, knowing that all of the gods of Babylon were false gods. And now by this time, after Daniel had lived some 70 years, almost 70 years in captivity from age 16, now an old man, Daniel's looking through the scrolls of Jeremiah and he comes across what is found in our Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. And he reads it, that the 70 years would eventuate into a release of Israel back to the land. And Daniel knows the season. He says, it's been almost 70 years. And he recognizes God's about to release something. God's about to release something. But notice what he does. He doesn't just stand pat in the written word and say, well, the Lord has said it. It will come to pass. He's moved within. He feels it. He recognizes the sovereign moment that he was living in and recognizes this also. When God is about to move, he will invariably awaken some of his children and he will impart to them an awareness of his intentions in that season of significance. There are many in the room and at times you felt odd. At times you felt like a misfit. At times when your heart is so heavy with an awareness, a growing awareness of the compounding sin of our nation, the compounding lukewarmness of the church in America, the undeniable spiritual kingdom apathy by so many that name the name of Jesus and yet are unmoved for the things of Jesus. And you've said to yourself, how can these things be? And you've felt it so intensely and you've wondered if you're the oddball. No, you're not the oddball. You're one of the ones that you see what he's saying. See, hear what he's saying and see what he's showing. And they're in the room today with us. There was another time in Israel's history where God was about to do something and he always primes his people, especially when it comes to, to judgment. He always gives warning after warning after warning after warning. And the history of God's people, whether Israel or in the church, has been we rationalize our way out of those warnings, we resent the ones that bring the warnings, and our hearts get hardened. And God still does what God said. He told uh, Israel in the days of Samuel, in 1 Samuel 3.11, he says, see, I am about to do something. 
He said this, see, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone that hears it tingle. So God is very gracious in saying, I want to tell you ahead of time what I'm about to do, and I'm going to empower you to have a choice to align with this warning. And if you choose to align with it and repent, great blessing will find you. He's not a, a Lord, a father that loves to judge and discipline. But he's also not an enabling father who just blows off our rebellion and our indifference to his holy name. And so he's discerning the season. Daniel has that moment when he recognizes in the midst of living his entire life almost in pagan captivity, he never lost his faith. He kept reading the scrolls. He kept searching for the voice of the Lord. And in that day, he says, the 70 years are here. I can do the math. This is the time of God's release. What an amazing moment for Daniel, but what, what gets me is his reaction. He didn't summon up all of the trumpeters and the shofar horns and the celebrants and the dancers and the tambourines and the stringed instruments. He didn't go immediately into a festivity and party. He got still and sober and small before the Lord, recognizing the immensity of God, releasing the people of God from captivity. And refusing to move directly into the hallelujah moment, he gets on his face before God, which is in verses 3 through 15. We find Daniel broken in confession. This is our moment. This is what we must get, church. Daniel embraced the heaviness. So he realizes in the word that they're about to get freed. And so what's his response? Verse 3, then I turn my face to the Lord my God seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting, with sackcloth, with ashes. If you're not familiar with that imagery, Daniel put himself in an activity of lament. He did not celebrate. He did not throw a party. Daniel got still and small, recognizing the enormity of what God was about to do, and then recognizing in some component that he is a representative of the people, that he and the people were not fit nor ready to move into this release God was about to give. So what did he do? In sober humility and brokenness, he did a very unpopular thing. He put on a garment that was intentionally crafted to cause discomfort. That's what sackcloth is, itchy goat skin. It wasn't something you'd lounge around in. It was to keep you in a state somewhat of agitation in your skin. And then he poured ashes on his head so that wherever he was, it would be known that Daniel is mourning over something. And then he fasted. He said, only your word can sustain me. I cannot eat. I cannot drink. I'm pressing in, Lord, in the utter brokenness of my spirit. I will not pretend that I am otherwise right now. So it's an interesting response for a guy who is portrayed in Scripture as a servant of the Lord who is completely devoted all of his life. He knows that God has already proclaimed this release that's coming. And the 70 years are up, yet Daniel is not going to sit back and passively wait on the Lord to accomplish this on behalf of his people Israel. Daniel is sobered and humbled by what he has read in Jeremiah's scroll. So he immediately enters into this fast and this heart posture of mourning and lament. 
And so inwardly and outwardly by the sackcloth and ashes, Daniel displays his own personal grief over the sinful history of his people. Mark that down. He's grieving over the sinful history right at the moment where God's about to deliver them from the the discipline for that history. How easy it would be to say, well, it's almost done. What's amazing is the best we can tell, this level of repentance had not occurred yet. 70 years, it occurs right at the end of it. Perhaps Israel, perhaps we are slow to learn that the time to repent must precede any expectation of revival. And friends, I will risk it. I think we are late to the call. Verses 4 through 8, Daniel associates personally with the sins of his ancestors. Just bear with me. I'm going to read the word here. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, watch the pronouns, we have sinned. And done wrong and acted wickedly. We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly, we have rebelled, we have turned aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame is it this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. And then he mentions his governmental rulers to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers because we have sinned against you. So Daniel is resting in God's faithfulness. Now he opened the prayer calling God the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So Daniel is resting in his understanding of the grace of God Almighty, and yet even his awareness of God's tender, merciful, and lavish grace does not prevent him from getting very specific in his confession. Can I say this? Well, I'm going to. God's grace is never given so that it lowers our estimation of our sin. It it, it gives us a context in which to confess and trust him, entrust our sin to him. But grace is not given so we can, sin, whatever, it's all grace. That's cheap grace, it's false grace, and it is a demonically fueled understanding of grace. Grace is not given to lower our evaluation of sin. I promise you, if you're growing in your awareness of the grandeur of God, you will grow in horror concerning your sin. Daniel is resting in the grace of God, but I love his confession because it's not an act of finger pointing. Daniel puts himself squarely in the confession of Israel's historical rebellion. He didn't do any of the stuff he just confessed. Hear me, he didn't do it. He did not personally engage in the very sins which he is mourning over, lamenting over, 
in sackcloth and ashes as a representative of the greater whole of his people, Daniel says, we have done this, O God, in your sight. He uses the word we instead of they. Just listen. We have sinned, God. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have turned aside from your word. We have silenced the prophets. That's what makes it a very unusual prayer. Uh, We're a little reluctant to confess the sins that we've actually done. We like to redefine them. We like to borrow from the culture the terms that they have given us to repackage what God calls certain sins. We now say, oh, we don't call it that anymore. We have culturally acceptable terms that were produced and provided by our universities and our psychologists and our counselors and our pastors. And we prefer to call that this, not Daniel. Daniel said, it's sin, and Lord, we are guilty. Daniel also specifically in these verses mentions the sins of those who once ruled in authority in both the civic and the religious sectors. He looks back in history and he says, our kings, our princes, our rulers, and our fathers, our nobles, have turned from you and we have rebelled. There are some specific grievances that have never been intentionally owned in the history of the United States of America. If you're offended at this, I'm okay with that. But I do ask that you take an intellectually honest approach and then a prayerful approach and ask the Lord, is Jeff stretching this or is this a legit application? We came under this continent and in a thirst and a hunger for freedom, progress, and advance, we slaughtered Native Americans. Some people would say, well, Jeff, that was, it was a necessary tactical evil in order to fulfill manifest destiny. The way God would look at it is you killed those I made in my image. And we did it for wealth, and we did it for advancement, and we did it in the name of freedom. If that weren't horrific enough, those that establish the colonies and then later establish the republic, 400 years ago this month, on ships with inhuman conditions, brought chained Africans from that continent to come here to work our fields and our land and our plantations to produce an economy that enriched us, established this nation, and all of the while using the Bible to defend it. and it's never been repented of. Oh, I understand a word here, a word there. And I understand this. I understand the logic. I will say this. My family in Virginia in the 1700s owned African slaves, the Lyles. If you go down the road in Lawrenceville in the Decula area, 
you'll see names like Lyle Circle, and you'll find a name of a road called Chicken Lyle Road. Chicken Lyle was an African who took the name of one of my ancestors in Virginia. When he was emancipated, he came to this area. The first Lyle in this area was an emancipated African slave whose master took his African name and called him Chicken. It's never been repented of. And I understand, many in the room would say, I never owned a slave. My family never owned a slave. Contemporary blacks in America never were slaves. It's not an issue. Daniel could have said, I was never a king. I never silenced the prophets. I, I, I never rebelled against your law. I never engaged in an aversion to your commandments. I can't own this. I didn't do it. But that's not what Daniel said. Because his heart was pierced by the greater heart of the Lord. And he said, we have done this, Lord. We have sinned. If the eradication of American, Native Americans and the enslavement of Africans historically wasn't enough. What about the contemporary issue in the last 40-something years of infanticide in our nation where 60 million-plus babies have been slaughtered on the altar of choice? Say, so Jeff, I never had an abortion. I never paid for an abortion. Daniel owned the sins. Daniel did not say, I am an Israelite and they are guilty Israel. He said, I am an Israelite and we are guilty Israel. I am an American and we are guilty in America before the eyes of a holy God. The overt perversion of the gift of human sexuality given to God unto a husband and a wife and we have perverted it in every seemingly possible way. And there's no repentance in the culture over this. There is actually the endorsement of several segments of the professing church that have said, this is fine. And there is no repentance. Daniel associated with the sin of his ancestors. And friends, I'm going to be as bold as I can. If we do not commit in a gospel kingdom vein of repenting on behalf of our national ancestors, our family ancestors, if we do not repent today in our families for family sin, if we don't repent in our churches from church sins, if we don't repent as the church, the nation and the culture won't. And it is unreasonable for us to expect revival to hit America, awakening to hit America, when there is a vacuum of the church, the people of God, becoming honest about our ancestral sins on this terra firma, this nation, this continent. There should be weeping. There should be moaning. There should be lamenting. There should be the beating of the breast saying, God, be merciful unto me. Daniel saw his history through his faith. He did not say, that's history, this is faith. He said, that's history in the context of who I am before a holy God. 
He says this in verse 9, to, our, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. That's good news, by the way. You say, Jeff, you're making us feel guilty. No, I'm actually not. I'm telling you the truth. And if you're feeling guilty, it's because the Holy Spirit is saying, I want to give you mercy and forgiveness. If you'll follow through on your conviction, you'll experience mercy and forgiveness. But Daniel goes further. He says, we've rebelled against him. Daniel hadn't. That's what I need you to get. Daniel personally hadn't. But Daniel would say, yeah, I have because we have. It says, we have not obeyed his voice, verse 10, the voice of the Lord our God. We haven't walked in his laws that he set before us by his servant, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law. He's turning it towards the Lord. All of Israel, God, has transgressed your law. We've turned aside. We've refused to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured upon us. For 70 years, they were living in a reality of God keeps his word even when it's a hard word. God told him, this is what I'm going to do. Israel said, I bet he won't do it. God said, I'm going to send you prophets. They're going to tell you, this is what I'm going to do. Israel said, I don't think so, because we've got the temple, and we've got the Ark of the Covenant, and we've got the covenants, and we've got the promises, and we're Israel. And God, in effect, says, yeah, you're Israel, and I'm the God over Israel. And he sees their history through faith. He says, Lord, it's because we've sinned against you. He has confirmed his words, verse 12, that he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. I need to say this. If God did not withhold hard justice against his covenant people Israel, how in the world do we think non-covenant America will escape? There is no heavenly covenant with America. We are not a national covenant people. We may be proud. We may be prosperous. We may be well defended. We may be a people that is more um, oriented towards heaven than perhaps any other nation on the earth. But there is no irrevocable covenant from between God and the United States. Hear that. Hear that. In America, as we, pro we, we continue to process day in and day out, raising a fist in the face of God and extending a middle finger with the other hand in the face of God saying to him you're not going to do anything and the church has lost her tremble the church has lost her lament the church has said my political party tells me what to believe my political party tells me against what to protest. My political party determines my values, my ideals, my heartbeat. My political party defines me. And God says, if you stay there, you will be on the wrong end of me fulfilling some hard things from my word. Daniel did not excuse the treachery of national Israel and their history. He didn't excuse it. Please don't do that. Don't make the mistake. It's not just the issue. We're, listen, 
I believe we're at a 400-year moment is significant. It's not the only issue, but it's an eye-opener. It is a glaring, hanging in our face, beckoning of the Lord saying, 400 years ago, the nation and its government entered into the most treacherous injustice in a nation's history. And the temptation in our generation is to just to say, hey, can we let that go? We, we can't move forward if we're always looking back. I'll say two things to that. Look back at it long enough for it to start meaning something to you. And then when we repent, we can look ahead. Until we repent, it's still unfinished business. That 400 year, I believe God is drawing a spotlight attention on it because it is one in several issues that we have shrugged at. And he's saying, I expect that from a pagan culture, but not from my people. Could it be that the heart of God could ever look on this injustice, enslavement, treachery, and the overall undeniable soul pollution of slavery and God to say nothing? Could it be that his covenant people through the blood of Jesus could live in such a way that we don't imbibe his heart on this issue, but we say, let bygones be bygones? Could that be the heart of God? Could we ever operate in the spirit of God and say, I am not guilty, my ancestors had nothing to do with it? Daniel didn't feel that way. Daniel got specific in confession, verses 13 through 15. He says, as it is written in the law of Moses. By the way, I love Daniel's constant reference to the written word of God. He says, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Please leave that verse up on the screen for a moment. He says, we are on the back end of 70 years of being sovereignly spanked for our refusal to submit and repent. And he says, on the back end of 70 years of discipline, we still have not entreated as a people the favor of the Lord. We still not have not, as a people, turned from these historical iniquities. We still haven't gained any insight from your truth. Oh, that's us. That's us. 400 years, 50 years after God spotlighted here in the South, the Bible Belt through the civil rights, spotlighted in the, the injustices, continues to this day. And there still has not been, outside of the one race movement, I don't know of a singular intentional commitment for races to come together and own the sins of our ancestors and our heritage, we still haven't gained insight. We cry for repentance with zeal, fasting and praying for breakthrough. And I hear the Lord saying, not yet. 
soon, but not yet. Only after repentance can revival come. And the danger for all of us is to wait for the other guy to own it. By the way, I know the arguments and white people are feeling perhaps in the room right now or watching on live stream and this will go on television, all that. I, listen, I want to shock you. I'm a white guy. I've had conversations with some of you. I get it. You, you don't like feeling guilty for something you didn't do. Hear me. The goal is not for you to feel guilty. The goal is for us to be honest before a holy God and call it what it is and what it was. Guilt is what the devil wants to have us land on and stay there. Discomfort and conviction often feel like guilt. Don't stop there and it won't remain a guilty feeling. It'll be a doorway unto breakthrough. But if you stop there and protest, with your spiritual arms folded across your chest, you're just going to be another resentful white person. For my African-American brothers and sisters, I want to be just as bold. Your destiny is not perpetual bitterness and anger. That is not what the Lord has assigned to you. That is not your destiny as an overcomer, as more than a conqueror as one who is always made to triumph in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, if you're waiting on the white man, white woman to own it fully, and you're waiting for penance to be installed, it is possible that your thirst for justice is simply masquerading as a true desire for vengeance. You have to own it. I have to own it. We as the people of God must own the whole equation. Only then, through honest brokenness in all of our hearts, can Holy Spirit begin to breathe on us as a people. And he will. And he will. But I will say this. The beginning of the remedy must source itself in the origin of the problem, and the origin of the problem was with people that looked like me. And if we don't own that, white indifference will continue to fuel black outrage. So we've got to come together in this place called the gospel where there is no distinction of value, where there is inequality in Jesus Christ, where Jesus looks upon us and he says, I love them all, I lay down my life, I have called you my friends. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get ready to, to wind this up. I'm going to go to verses 16 through 19. Let me just say in Daniel's confession in the verses 13, 14, and 15, it solves the question. It answers the question, is generational ancestral, ancestral repentance valid? It is valid. It is valid. It is not wrong. It is exalted in the scripture in the life of Daniel. I don't have time. Billy will make mention of others next Sunday. 
But in this lone confession, as unusual and unpopular as it is, this lone confession lets us know that we have a thoroughly biblical foundation for individuals taking ownership of corporate sins committed by families, churches, cities, and nations. Contrary to the American virtue of hyper-individualism, there are times when God is calling his people to own the sins of the past, even when those owning those sins were not personally guilty of having committed them. So Daniel transitions here, and this is what I like, because this is painful. Everything is, I, I feel it, I feel the weight. Daniel has an audacious expectation in verse 16. So look what he does. He, his confession turns into petition. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Do you see what Daniel does? Daniel says, Lord, I've got nothing to bargain with you. God, I'm, I'm indefensible. Our people are indefensible. We can't defend it. We can't justify it. We can't diminish it. We can't repackage it. What we've done, we've done. And so, Lord, the only ground I can potentially stand on is the ground of your grace and your mercy and your covenant love over us. We are guilty, but I am believing, Father, that your grace is bigger than my guilt. And he confesses and petitions that on behalf of an entire nation. Friends, what would happen if the church, you, me, the church, what would happen if we got as vulnerably honest with God as Daniel did? What if we stopped fighting and defending the parts that we should own on behalf of the dead and buried who missed their chance to own it? What would happen if the church, do your history on slavery, do your research, highly culpable from the origins of enslavement of Africans to the indifference of the civil rights movement, highly culpable was the clergy. Pastors, priests, preachers, and prophets who should have spoken didn't. Even taking the Bible, twisting it to say Africans are cursed by God. We will take them and we will bring them to our continent and we will teach them of Jesus. They will have a better life here as spiritually free, though physically enslaved. Preachers use the Bible to defend the blight on our national history called slavery. We have to repent where they did not. 
You didn't do that. Neither did I, but we did. We, the church, did. Daniel says, Lord, listen to my prayer and my pleas for mercy. Here's his expectation for favor in verse 17. Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. He's saying, God, all I've got is my prayers and my pleas before you. And listen to this boldness. The cloud begins to lift. Daniel has repented. The spirit begins to move within him out of the, the bog of despond. And he moves from that brokenness and confession of ancestral sins. And he begins to speak hope. And he says, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. The temple was demolished still, even as Daniel's praying. And he says, oh God, but if you will cause your face to shine once again where it once shone before. The desolation will leave. He says, 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. You see, my friends, that's where your hope is. That's where America's hope is. Hear me. Democrats, Republicans, independents, hear me. There's no hope in 2020 in your vote. Vote as you must, but if you attach your hope to it, you're a fool. There's nothing there. There will be repercussions from that election. There will be no hope in it, no matter who wins. Where is our hope? In the mercy of God, in the grace of God, in the compassion of God. There is hope in the gospel. There is hope in repentance. There is hope in uh, lament and mourning over our sins and owning what we must own. There is hope on the backside of saying to God, we are guilty, we will not hide it, we will not defend it, we will not rename it. We are what we are. God have mercy on our nation. Will you stand to your feet? Worship team, please come.